Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, for those of you who are watching, we want to let you know that tonight um, we're going to be having another online game night. So at 8 o'clock tonight, if you um, follow the link to the Zoom, the same Zoom that um, we sent out for the church service, if you click on that Zoom at 8 o'clock tonight, you can join us for an online game of Pictionary. Last time we played, Peter and Natalia and James and Kim uh, wasted me, so... Please come and give me support <laughs> and um, come and join us. It's actually a lot of fun. It's a, it's an online, um, I think it's draw source or something like that. And there's different words and you draw it and you guess and there's points. And so it's a lot of fun. So join us tonight at 8 o'clock for that. Now today we're uh, doing the last sermon of the series on influential Christians. Um, it's been, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know these influential Christians in the past, and I hope you have as well. If you've missed any of them, just go back to our YouTube channel, um, and you can see the ones where we preached about Richard Wombrand, um, about Ellen White, um, and a few others. And so please uh, go back on our YouTube channel and watch those. Imagine you're a child living during World War I. There are bombs everywhere all the time. There are air raids reminding you that you live in a dangerous place and a dangerous time. As you're hiding in your bunker with everyone else scared and frightened, thinking of perhaps your father or other loved ones that are away fighting in the wars, wondering if they're still alive. Can you imagine the terror that you live with every day? And then imagine that you and your siblings are sent away by yourselves without your mom, Without any other grown-up, you're sent away to live in the countryside with a distant relative you've never met because uh, they think it's safer for you there. So you're sent away from the city, you're sent away to the countryside, and you're, you and your siblings are in this strange house, bored, afraid, and one day it starts raining so you can't even play outside. And imagine that one of your siblings has the great idea of playing hide-and-seek. What, what better way to explore this new house that you're in? And so imagine you're playing hide-and-seek and you're looking for a good place to hide, right? Your sibling is counting 29, 30, 31. And you, you quickly get into a room and you see in wardrobe, you see this closet, this wooden closet. So you open the door and you go inside and, and you're trying to sneak Sling to the far back of the corner so that um, they can't find you. And as you're slinking back, you feel this cold, prickly sensation. Something's poking you and, and, and it feels really chilly. And you turn around and all of a sudden you're not in the wardrobe anymore, but you're inside a magical frozen forest and you've entered Narnia. So begins the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is one of the seven books um, in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. His other famous works include Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, Surprised by Joy, and one of my favorites, The Screwtape Letters. Who was this man who could write children's fantasy books as well as Christian apologetics? Well, Clive Staples Lewis, or Jack, as he liked to call himself. In fact, when he was a toddler, he declared to his whole family, my name is Jack. And so forever for the rest of his life, all his friends and family called him Jack. Or we call him C.S. Lewis. Um, he was born on 29th of November, 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. And his happy childhood was shattered when at the age of nine, his mother passed away and he was sent away to a boarding school where he felt completely alone and miserable. 
And he wasn't very athletic, which made his boarding school experience especially unhappy. And he was able to find solace in music and literature. Finally, he withdrew from school and he learned under a private tutor who not only shaped him into the brilliant scholar he became, but also a staunch atheist. So Jack enlisted in World War uh, in the war, First World War while he was still a teenager. And while in the war, he became friends with, with a young man, another Irish young man named um, Paddy Moore. Now, they became really good friends and they made this pact. He, they said, if one of you dies, I will take care of your parent. And so uh, Paddy had a mom. She was a widow. And of course, um, C.S. Lewis had a father who was a widow. And they said, if one of us dies, the other person will take care of the other. And so um, they made this pact, and when Patty was killed, C.S. Lewis w- was able to go back home um, when, when, when he was, his part was over, and he kept his promise, and he took care of Mrs. Moore for the next 30 years until her death, even though she was a very challenging uh, woman to live with, we are told. C.S. Lewis went on to teach at Oxford University and later became the professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And his conversion to Christianity was a very gradual one, and it was influenced by many factors. One of those factors was that he loved literature. And so as he read uh, medieval literature, Renaissance literature, and other modern literature, he found within the great writings of J.K. Chesterton and Dante and George MacDonald, he found in these great writers and in these, in these um, amazing texts, he found in them the story of Christianity interwoven or inspired or, or subconsciously beneath it all that made the stories more profound. Another factor was, was his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. They were talking one day about religion and myth. And C.S. Lewis asked, how could it be? You know, there are so many myths in Egypt, in, in Greece, um, in, in Greek mythologies, in Nordic mythologies. There are so many myths about a young god that dies and comes back to life. So how do we know that Jesus wasn't just another myth? And J.R.R. Tolkien replied, yes, it's a myth. It happens to be the one myth which is true. And Tolkien showed Lewis that while all religions show us a glimpse of God, that Christianity was the big picture, the ultimate narrative that gives us a fuller picture of God. And so as C.S. Lewis reflected on his conversation with Tolkien and other Christian friends that he had, as well as the literature he had read in the past, um, he, he, he had this other kind of almost indescribable thing that pulled him. He called this joy. He says, not mere happiness, but rather this indefinable grandeur that seemingly was just beyond reach that he called joy. He said it was real. He felt it was this real external force that was drawing him closer and closer. And this is how he described it. He says, I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back, drip, drip. And presently, trickle, trickle. I rather disliked the feeling. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his um, memoir, Surprised by Joy, goes on to talk about how he really didn't want to become a Christian. He resisted it. He said he, he was kicking and struggling and resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. But escape he felt he could not. And he finally surrendered. And he wrote... You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen um, College, Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. 
In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. So at the age of 33, C.S. Lewis became a Christian. And even though he was reluctant at first, he became one of the prominent uh, champions of the Christian faith. During World War II, BBC asked him to broadcast a defense of Christianity. And so every day um, or every week, whenever the broadcast would go out, he would give a defense of Christianity. And these broadcasts were so popular that some people tuned into him more than they did to Winston Churchill's uh, speeches during the war. These broadcasts later became the book, Mere Christianity, which has never been out of print since its publication in 1952. As a result of his broadcasts, as a result of his books, um, he receives a lot of fan mail, and C.S. Lewis personally responded to all the fan mail. And one of the individuals with whom he kept a long, ongoing correspondence was a, young, was a woman named Joy Davidman, who was an American poet, um, and they corresponded for over two years, and finally she actually um, moved to the UK. And at first, um, you know, they were just really good friends because he he found in her this incredible woman of of intellect, of humor. You know, she was even more well read than he, even though he's a professor at a university. Um, she had read more widely than he had, and so he found in her this intellectual equal, or maybe even a superior. And 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 he loved um, talking with her and spending time with her. But at first, kind of as a friend. But what happened was that Joy, um, her visa ran out, and and there were issues with the visa, visa and she had to go back to the U.S. Um, with her two sons from a previous marriage. And and he decides, I'm just gonna let's get married. And so at first, what became kind of a marriage of convenience for him, you know, he just didn't want to lose her as a friend. But eventually, he did come to love her very much. Now, sadly, four years after their marriage, um, she died of cancer. And he wrote um, under a pseudonym a book called Grief Observed. And one of the most powerful lines from that book is this statement, no one ever told me how grief felt so much like fear. Um, and it was a really hard time for him because I think he really grieved the fact not only that he lost his wife, but that he didn't get to really show her how much he loved her as much as he could have. Lucius Lewis himself died just three years later. Um, his death was actually overshadowed by the assassination of J.F. Kennedy, which happened on the same day. Uh, but in 2013, on the 50th anniversary of his death, a dedication service was held at Westminster Abbey, and a memorial floor stone was laid in Poets' Corner with the inscription, um, one of his quotes, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so if you ever go to London and go visit Westminster Abbey, you can go to Poets' Corner and see that inscription on the floor. C.S. Lewis left a legacy of over 60 books and essays, but he is best remembered for his children's books series, Chronicles of Narnia. The series is set, as I shared, in this fantasy realm of Narnia, a kingdom of magic, mythical beasts, talking animals, and uh, the human children who go into Narnia have adventures and voyages and battles, and one of the central figures in the series is Aslan, who is the king of Narnia. We get introduced to Aslan um, by Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver. They say Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. 
I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall fear, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And, you know, we, we get to eventually meet Aslan, who is this great lion, who is... Who who is uh, who inspires not fear but respect, right? Because he's not safe. He's but he's good. And um, Lucy, who's one of the young children, one of the first to see Aslan. You know, she sees him, but the older siblings cannot. And and she gets frustrated because she'll say, "Hey, I, I think I see you know a lion." And the, and the other siblings would say, "What are you talking about? You're making things up." And when Lucy finally meets Aslan face to face, she asks him, "Will the others see you too?" Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, replies Aslan. And that's one of the themes throughout the Chronicles of Narnia is that faith, right, belief, and persevering in the faith, even when others ridicule you, even if no one else believes you, right? Faith in this unseen, in, invisible that, that you can see, that you can experience, but that others may not. That's a central theme throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. Much later, when Lucy is told um, by Aslan that, he, that she will not be returning to Narnia, she starts sobbing and she says, We shan't meet you there, and how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir? said Edmund. I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And, and so, you know, there's hints throughout the Chronicles of Narnia that, that Aslan, this, this king, this lion, represents something more. That in this reality that we live in, we can learn to know him by a different name. And of course, he represents Jesus. And, and the idea of Narnia is that it's showing you that there is another world if we were open to seeing it. You know, sometimes the stories in the Bible, they seem like fairy tales. They seem like fantasies, right? Talking donkeys, dividing waters, manna from heaven. But as J.R.R. Tolkien said, it is a myth, but it happens to be the one myth that is true. And perhaps because of our disbelief, because of our cynicism, perhaps this is one of the reasons why God doesn't perform miracles all the time. He knows that even when, we, when he does perform them, we don't believe it. When Jesus was here on earth performing miracle after miracle, people still didn't believe in him. Right after he fed thousands of people with just five loaves of bread and two fish, the people came to him and they didn't say, oh, we now believe. Instead, they come to him and they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? In other words, they're saying that wasn't enough. Show us more and then we'll believe. And Jesus knows they're not going to. And instead of giving them another miracle, this is what he says in verse 35 onwards. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, 
but raised them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You see, God knows that He can give us miracle after miracle, and He does a lot of times. But He knows that's not what is going to convince us that He is real and that He is good. He knows that instead it's the ordinary things, that if we can learn to look at them with new eyes, right? that's that's going to take us and transport us to a new realm. That's why he took ordinary bread and he made it a symbol of his broken body. He pointed to the sun and said, I am the light of the world. He pointed at the disciples and, and said, you are the salt of the earth. He used everyday objects and images around him. The sower, sowing the seed, the, the, the shepherds guiding the, their flock. He used these metaphors and symbols to help us understand the greater reality of the kingdom of God. So that as people drink water, they would remember the words that he said, that if anyone drinks of the, of the water he gives, that they will become fountains of water flowing out into, into eternal life. That as we ate bread, we remember him saying that he is the bread of life. That as the fishermen fish, they will remember that he said, I will make you fishers of men. If Jesus had come in our lifetime, in our generation, what symbols and metaphors would he have used? What ordinary things and people in our lives are avenues that he uses to speak to us? The supernatural experience of knowing an invisible God is possible when we are open to seeing the things here that gives us glimpses of another world. An ordinary-looking wardrobe transports you to Narnia. A normal-looking book transports us to the cosmic battle between good and evil. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We have to learn to recognize that there are symbols and signs and, and moments that actually take us to the invisible, that he's ever present and working, even though we can't always physically see him and physically hear him, that through history, in our lives, right, in nature, all around us, he is working to bring about justice and mercy. We can actually see if we're willing to look with different eyes. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Do you see the hand of the creator in the flower, in the bird, in the baby being knit in the mother's womb? Do we see the hand of the designer in our days as they unfold and string together to form our own unique stories? If we were to write a storyboard of our lives, would we see the patterns, the turning points, the choices that seemed insignificant at the time, but later were instrumental in leading us to the people, places, and things that we never expected? We meet ordinary people who leave an extraordinary impact on who we become. Pierre de Chardin, a French philosopher, said, Do not forget that the value and interest of life is not so much to do conspicuous things, as to do ordinary things with the perception of their enormous value. Because ordinary things have incredible value, and we just kind of take it for granted. You know, as children, we understood how incredible ordinary things are. You know, this week, I bought Joshua a new toothbrush, because his old toothbrush was getting kind of sad. So, went to Kohl's, 
$1.99 new toothbrush. Brought it home. It was laying on the counter. Josh got home from childcare and he saw it and he was so excited. Is this for me? He cried. Yeah, it's for you. Please, can I hold it? So he was like cradling it all through dinner, you know, just didn't want to let it go. And he was so excited when Roy got home. Daddy, you know, I have a surprise for you. So Roy probably thought it was something exciting. And Josh was like, look, my new toothbrush, right? So excited about something that is so ordinary, but he understood as a child, right? He understood there's delight in new things. There's, there's something incredible about this ordinary thing. We were born with the capacity to wonder and marvel and imagine, but we grow up and we become jaded and cynical, busy or bored, distracted or blinded. Perhaps that's why Jesus loved children and said we have to become like little children to enter the kingdom of God. And perhaps that's why C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia. You know, every day Joshua also looks at the moon. He wakes up and he opens the blinds and he looks for the moon every day. And every day, he still is amazed by it. Look, there's the moon, right? Every day, he's so excited to see this thing that for me, and I, I know it's there, I know it's there every day, but I don't look for it. And we live in this glorious universe, but we just don't stop to pay attention. Human beings have destroyed much of the glory, the magic of this world. We have neglected it and we've forgotten, but it's still there. You know, this week, Lily sent me a picture of how uh, she went for a morning run, but it was so cold that there was snow on the ground. And she sent me a picture of it. You know, every, every snowflake is beautiful and intricate and unique. God loves magical, fantastical, glorious things. Why else would he have created things like this peacock? Amazing. And this coca. Never met it in person, but how adorable, right? Or look at this, armadillo. Did you know that armadillos can jump over a meter in the air, hold their breath underwater for up to six minutes, and that they give birth to four genetically identical babies at a time? It's amazing. I read this week um, an ar- a very interesting article, and it was actually an article in a magazine called Evolution News. Evolution News. And in the article, they were saying that scientists recognize that there is intelligent design. They won't say that the intelligent design is God, but they admit that there is intelligent design because when they look at the structure of DNA, right, they, they see in DNA an incredible design. And it's interesting because, you know, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was written, you know, in the 1800s and in his time it was revolutionary. But a hundred years later, in 1953, when Watson and Crick discovered DNA, the structure and sequencing of DNA, all of a sudden, this incredible, very specific sequencing challenges the premise of chance. Modern research has discovered that the digital information in DNA is an advanced form of nanotechnology that exceeds our own in complexity, design logic, and information storage density. And so scientists today acknowledge there is incredible intelligent design. Where it came from, they won't say it's God, but they say there is the undeniable um, information that is sequenced and coded in a way that chance is not possible. Every living thing is a miracle. Every atom and electron that enables life on this planet is a miracle. And it's not just functional. It's beautiful and funny, funny looking, diverse, right? 
It's so interesting if only were to stop and look. God isn't just this practical, serious, efficient judge. He's creative. He's romantic. He's whimsical. He decorates the sky with fantastic sunsets. And he fills the earth with glittering jewels. And he talks about how when he recreates heaven and uh, earth, he's preparing for us a city. And he talks about the pearls and the gold, right? He, he isn't just giving us functional spaces. He's creating beautiful space. There is so much evidence of a God who is more epic than we can imagine, who is from another world, but who can be known by us here in this world if we would recognize in the ordinary the extraordinary. That when the curtains lift and we catch a glimpse of this other realm and we wonder, is that just my imagination? Is this just a coincidence? Is this just a random result of chaos and time? That we choose to believe that there is another world. That we choose to believe and see the world with new glasses on. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. How open are we to the epic cosmic story of God who determines, you know, so much of what happens in the universe. And whether we believe that epic story determines how we live out our lives. Are we going to join this battle against evil? Will we see ourselves as princes and princesses on a mission for the king? I believe that the reason why Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and every superhero story that's out there, I believe the reason why they're so popular is because we're drawn to this idea that there is a cosmic war between good and evil. We're drawn to this idea that we can make a difference in that battle. We're drawn to the idea that we can be a hero, that we can save lives and that our lives matter. We're drawn to the idea that in the end, Good wins, justice prevails, and that love and sacrifice are worthy. C.S. Lewis uh, suggested, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable, probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I want to challenge you this week to be open to the epic story. I want you to be open to the reality that there is more going on than meets the eye. That the supernatural is actually all around us. That the evidence of God is all around us. And that the ordinary is actually a portal to the extraordinary. I want to invite you to enter into that space where all things are possible. And to be open to the fact that this world is, is not just the humdrum every day. But that this world is actually the stage in which a great war and, and a great love story is being played out and that we have a part to play. And I pray that as a result of you being open to that and being open to say new things and hearing um, what, what perhaps we haven't paused to listen to before, that as a result of your openness, you'll get to encounter the amazing, fantastical, supernatural experience that is the journey with God. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that... Um, You've given us stories in the Bible that not only teach us things, but that inspire us. Stories of little David fighting a giant Goliath. Stories of Jesus being born to a virgin young lady. These stories that seem so fantastical, that seem so um, extraordinary and almost unbelievable. But thank you for these stories that actually show us that we were created for another world. 
that there is more to this world than what meets the eye. Help us to to recognize the extraordinary, extraordinary in the ordinary things around us and in the people to recognize that you have created us to be in your image. Help us, Father God, to uh, in our openness to seeing and hearing new things, experience and encounter you in a powerful way that transforms our stories and that shapes the contributions we make to the world around us. And I also want to pray for all those who had a really difficult week this week. I know that people are are suffering loss and that there are people, loved ones, um, who either have COVID or who are going through difficult things and health problems and financial issues. And Father, I just want to pray, you know who they are, that your Holy Spirit would be with them in a powerful way, give them comfort and strength. I pray in your son's name. Amen.